Hello and welcome back to Thinking About It. I'm Bob McGregor. And I'm Stan Fowler. And uh, we're thinking about the local church, Stan, in relation to uh, Dr. Michael Haken, a good friend of ours. He wrote a little article on Facebook, like he's been doing a lot lately. And uh, the most recent one was, um, how accountable should Baptist churches be to each other? How independent are we? Is that a strength? Is that a weakness? Is it a weakness within a strength? So let's chat about, we're a Baptist church. We are. Leaders of of Baptist church. I'm very happy in our movement, but maybe we're not in every sense perfect, hitting the bullseye. And we need to, along with Michael, think about our relationship to other churches and how autonomous are we. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm grateful to Michael for uh, stimulating the conversation via Facebook. Um, he and I have talked a bit about it over the years. I've, uh, I talk about it every year in uh, my course, Theology of Church and Ministry. I've written on the topic I uh, wrote a chapter called Churches and the Church. It must be about 15 years ago, published in a book with a wonky title that I can't remember. But um, anyway, it, it was one of the great things I've written, I think. Although, um, Well, you should remember the title. Maybe someone wants to buy the thing and order yeah, it. I, I, I really should, uh, mm-hmm. if, I, if I just could. But I, it, I think I've told you, I've... I'm a bit embarrassed by the fixation on autonomy that, that's often been there in our movement. I'm, I'm embarrassed by the intensity of the statement about it in our fellowship, in our denominational statement of faith. The, number one, when talking about the church, our statement doesn't affirm a universal church at all. We have a paragraph on the local church. Nothing about the universal church. Now, I don't know any fellowship pastor who denies the reality of universal church, Mm -hmm. but we don't affirm it. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the local church, statement says every local church is a sovereign, independent body under the headship of Christ, exercising its own rights, precepts, and privileges. And I have no idea what our own precepts from Christ are. It doesn't sound like we need each other. No, it doesn't. In reality, there's, there's a, a much stronger sense of being together, a much stronger sense of connection and interdependency. But I think, I think what happened is the, our, our doctrinal statement was formed in 1953. And it was formed when, when two groups of Baptist churches came together both of which had their roots in the modernist fundamentalist controversy, as it was called, of the 1920s. And and arising out of that, you had people like our predecessors in our movement who withdrew from the historic Baptist convention at the time and, and I think became very anti-denominational in their mindset. And somehow they thought that the way to remain orthodox is to focus on local church autonomy. Okay, now there is a context to that, right? Well, there is. There was a denominational uh, uh, slippery slope that kind of took a lot of churches along with them. And so their response was, let's not be a denomination, let's be a fellowship of independent churches. That's Yeah, that, that is certainly the background. I mean, what had happened, the denomination 
frankly had gone off the rails and was tolerating heresy. It was tolerating uh, genuinely liberal theology. And I think the separation, unfortunately, had to occur. That's true. But how does saying every local church does its own thing keep them all orthodox? How, how are you going to maintain doctrinal purity in whatever kind of fellowship you have if you have no kind of doctrinal accountability to the wider body of churches? Yeah, it doesn't really sound like a good solution, does it? No, I, I, th- I think it's not a solution at all. It just means, okay, if a church goes off the rails, maybe we can vote them out. But, but there again, we normally say, okay, you, you can be a church in our fellowship if you... Uh, affirm our doctrinal statement. But you can't cover everything in advance in a doctrinal statement. They're all written in at a given time and place. I, I remember uh, just a few years ago, uh, this back when I was full-time professor of theology at Heritage Seminary, our regional denominational offices, Feb Central offices, were right down the hall in our building. And so that meant that our regional director, when he had whatever kind of question, could just walk down the hall and into my office and ask me about it. So one day he came down and he told me about a problem with a pastor in one of our churches who was teaching a, a doctrine of baptism in the spirit that that would be at home in classic Pentecostalism, but not at home in our movement. And and he was talking about, oh, what kind of lovers do I have? How can I say to him, you know, you, you really don't belong in our churches. And I said, there's nothing in our doctrinal statement that denies right. that classic Pentecostal doctrine of baptism in the Spirit. Yeah. So we don't have a mechanism to say to him, you need to leave, or if your church accepts your teaching, the church needs to leave, because he's not denying our doctrinal statement. We had resolutions in the past, but they don't even appear in our documents anymore, and they didn't have any teeth anyway. No, the resolutions were non-binding by definition. I I was a part of the resolutions committee three different times, and I was chair of it twice, so I, I know a bit about that history. But they did speak very specifically to that issue, but they're non-binding. They spoke to particular issues, but they're non-binding. Yeah. Now, I'm grateful that that in our fellowship nationally, finally, just a little over a year ago, actually, we finally approved and put into place a policy statement mechanism, which allows us, via the delegates sent to, to an annual denominational conference, to 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 adopt a policy statement that deals with developing theological issues and draws lines. It's a binding statement that fellowship churches must affirm. We finally did that. So the first one, uh, the first, well, to this date, the only policy statement that has come out of that in, in the brief time it's been in effect was a statement on marriage and sexuality, which commits us to marriage as the union of one man and one woman, and and commits churches to affirm that in practice. That's a good thing. Prior to that, hypothetically, 
a fellowship church could say, we affirm the doctrinal statement, mm-hmm. we affirm the inerrancy of the Bible, but we think the Bible properly understood would accept same-sex marriage. And, and we would not have had a formal basis on which to remove the church. So I, I'm, I would argue, along with my friend Michael, that, that we really need to accept a, a kind of a stronger sense of accountability beyond the local level. Well, the local church can enter into that accountability, right, and agree right. to it, but they can, they can withdraw from it anytime they like and become independent if that's, if that's the, the most important thing to them. Sure, they can do that, but, but if, if we have a kind of mechanism for accountability while the church is a part of the denomination, then, then at least we're doing whatever we can to um, to rein them in and 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 to keep one another in line. Historically, if you go back to the, say the 17th century, Baptists had a much stronger sense of connection, and and were willing to talk about things like multiple churches being one body and under one rule. Would you say they were more denominational? Because that was a bad word at well, one point with us. Yeah, I think they were. And I, I've always been amused over the years. I, I mean, I immigrated to Canada almost 43 years ago. I've happily been a part of our fellowship churches all that time. Um, and yet I've always been amused to hear our leaders say, we're not a denomination, we're a fellowship. Mm-hmm. When by any normal understanding of the word denomination, of course we are. I mean, they, that's, that kind of statement assumes that denomination means hierarchical. But denominations are structured in a great variety of ways. But to your point, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation over 10 minutes ago, we have five <laughs> minutes left, that our, our articles or our doctrinal statement um, l- l- leads us in that direction to not be a denomination, but to be independent, sovereign churches. So... We get what we deserve. We kind of cre- plant, uh, sow the seeds for that anti-denominationalism. We, we do that, um, and, and that's why I've, I've argued uh, among denominational fellowship leaders, let's say, that we, sh- we should, frankly, update our statement of faith. Oh, Stan. And every, every time I suggest <laughs> that, I have to do CPR on, on the fellowship leaders. But we don't believe any statement of faith that we create is infallible and timeless. So, so it's not enough to issue policies. You would actually change our doctrinal statement. Well, I would, because I, th- I think the way it reads now, it doesn't say what we actually believe and practice. We actually have believe a stronger sense of interconnection than that. I agree. Yeah. And, and I really think we should update the statement to reflect that. It's not. There are a couple of other points at which I think the statement uh, right. could be tweaked. Can we as avoid well. that right now? We can avoid that. I know right. We can avoid that right now. now. Do you, when you let, we're the Bible is everything to us, right? We we base right. our our polity on the Bible. How would you say in Acts, for instance, or the world of the New Testament, uh, the church is related to each other? Can can we discern that? Well. We we don't have a lot other than, of course, the unique ministry of the apostles. Who, who were the authoritative voice of Christ in the apostolic church. And yet, we, we do see some sense 
of of that wider connection. Acts 15 is the best picture of it, I think. I mean, now you have a church in Antioch who were troubled because some people have come down from Jerusalem and said, you can't really be saved unless you submit to the law of Moses mm-hmm. and circumcision and so on. That troubled the church in Antioch, of course. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas and others down to Jerusalem to say, what's the truth here? Mm-hmm. So we're told that the the apostles and elders, and that's interesting. It wasn't just the mm-hmm. apostles. Mm-hmm. It was the apostles and elders who met and and discussed and debated the question. And they concluded, no, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Gentiles who believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, are saved without becoming Jewish, without submitting to Mosaic law. Mm -hmm. And then they sent a letter to Antioch, but they also addressed it to churches beyond Antioch, saying, this is our conclusion on the matter, and we ask you to accept this. So there was no sense that they were saying, okay, well, Antioch can make its own decision. Jerusalem can make its own decision. There was a sense that... It wasn't just an ask, though. It it seemed to me it was an apostolic request, which... It was phrased very powerfully. Yeah. Yes, it it was. But it was was the apostles and elders who decided it, and it was a discussion that involved people in the Jerusalem church and others Mm -hmm. who were sent there by Antioch. I think it's just a little indicator of what you find going on in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes to the Corinthian church twice in that epistle, chapter 11 and in chapter 14. he, He says to them in essence, look, get in line with all the churches. He invokes the consensus of the churches universally to say, look, the gospel didn't start with you, hasn't only come to you. You need to respect the consensus of the wider church. Okay, Stan, we're, we, I don't know, we're out, of, we're out of time, but let's add five minutes to this conversation. All right, let's do it. Five minutes. Let's and, do it. And talk about the implications of this conversation for ordination. We get together at an ordination time. And I think the purpose of that has changed over the years, or at least the, it's, it's, so the idea is that we make a decision as a group of churches to ordain someone, he's one of us. Um, how, how can we do that better uh, and to, to reflect the, the commitment we have to one another to ensure orthodoxy in the ordination of these guys who are representing our movement in the pulpit? How, how much should the local church own that and what needs to be shared or owned by the association or our denomination? Oh, boy. Yeah, five you, minutes. You, you hardly know what you've, yeah. what you've led me into. Just, I, I've, been, you know, I've, been, I've been fighting this battle with our mm-hmm. leaders, fellowship leaders, for a long time, arguing that we should, we should rethink ordination and take it much more seriously. Theoretically, traditionally, we've said it's the act of the local church. Now, the local church... The sovereign local church. The sovereign per, local church. Yeah. And the local church now normally invites other churches in the, in the association, in the general area, to send representatives to question the, the person. And 
and give their judgment as to whether the church ought to proceed with ordination. I think we should just recognize that we, we do that for a good reason, uh, because it it is something the local church needs help in in discerning. Uh, is this fellow orthodox, competent? Can he think his way clearly through Scripture and applying it and so on? And, but I think we should just admit what we're doing is a denominational affirmation. And if we are, it would be much wiser, I think, to create an actual denominational team, an ordination examination team, to, so that we standardize mm-hmm. it and we have people who are committed to taking it very seriously. You and I have, have been to enough ordination councils to know how much variety there is among them. And I, I've been to too many of them where it was hard to get anybody to ask a serious question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've been the one trying to ask a serious question, and I've seen the people yeah. of the church turn around and look at me as if yeah. to say, who invited him to but rain on the people do an end run on you to get you in the guy's advisory council so that you can't ask questions from the floor. Well, they've tried that. Yes, they've <laughs> tried. Or... Or they make me the moderator. Um, at which point I say, "Look, if oh, you're I'm, onto the tactics. If, if I'm the moderator, I'm in charge here. Yeah. So if I need to clarify a question, I, I can do that. I'm, I'm just saying there, in order to protect uh, the ministry of the word in our churches, the wisdom of the wider church is a valuable thing, and we could take that a whole lot more seriously." not only in terms of general doctrinal accountability of the church to the wider church, but also in terms of getting the affirmation. Right. Do you know of a church that has gone against the advice of a council to proceed with ordination? I know some who haven't. They've, they've yeah. accepted I, I, it. I can't think of one in my experience off the top of my head. I, I, I know that, yeah, I, I don't know an explicit example. Yeah. Another, just another question, and we are at two minutes left. Okay. So one of the things that we do at an ordination council, and I don't know who made the rule, but it, we, we pass a motion to fellowship with the candidate, right? So to my understanding, that's a group of colleagues saying, yeah, he's one of us. Um, and then we'll recommend that the church go ahead with their intent to, yes. to ordain him. So what are the implications of that motion? Um, is this is this a denominational thing? Is it just like we're Fellowship Baptist pastors who are inviting this guy into our college, as it were? I guess that's what it's, it means. I've already found I've always found that to be an odd sounding motion. Mm-hmm. Frankly, uh, I think the task of the council is to give their opinion to the church as to whether they should proceed with the ordination. That one motion, it seems to me, is is acceptable. Implicitly, he becomes sort of one of us, the ordained ones, if the church proceeds. Um, a really interesting question is, if, if it's wise for the church to invite others to give their counsel about this formal act of ordination, might it also be wise for a church to invite those others to give their counsel before they even appoint the man as pastor? Now, that has a Presbyterian feel to what it. What 
What did you just so so? I'm just I, saying that that ordination council could pre, could precede the church's appointment of the man. They're hiring as pastor before they hire. Before they hire, they do that out west. You know that. Well, um, they've they they asked me if I might want to come out west years ago. I maybe yeah. it's time to go west, old man. I well, don't know. we are don't don't listen to that. <laughs> we are we are out of time, but we it's like most of our conversations. We don't really end them well. It's just it's over. These are our conversation starters. They're, they're, they hang out there. So we are grateful for. Anyone listening to us, uh, muse about these things, and like always, let us know if you've got a a topic or even a contribution to this conversation. I'm Bob McGregor. I'm Stan Fowler. Until then, thanks for listening. Keep on thinking.